And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. The scene takes place at the city gates in Semitic towns that were walled. There would be one gate. It was in the east, and the king had his throne there, or a magistrate if it wasn't a considerable-sized town. And people would have to pass by his inspection. And also, this was the place where judgments were made in disputes. And so, this takes place at the city gate, and little did this grieving widow know that she would meet the eternal king and judge and see his, ma- his mercy and compassion. We have something similar in our own church architecture. If you look at Gothic churches above the entrance, you'll see a, a Christo Pantocrator, a Christ who is the judge, the universal judge, seated right above in his throne, in his throne of judgment. And this is an invitation for us when we see the Christo Pantocrator to do an examination of conscience before we enter the church. It's also a reminder that we too will pass judgment and therefore we ought to get used to it. We have to accustom ourselves to this notion that we too will pass through judgment. We have a judge who is merciful and he wants us to accuse us of our sins, accuse ourselves so that he doesn't have to. When our Lord sees this widow and it says of an only it says monogenes, so it, it was her only child, not just her only son, but it was her only child. In other words, she had no other children, and she's a widow. She's got no network, no support. This is a very difficult situation for this woman. And we see this conjunction of verbs, this coming together of verge, verbs that is fascinating and tells us so much about the heart of our Lord. We see idon, followed by splanknitsomai. Idon is he saw or to perceive, and then splanknitsomai. Splanknitsomai is the Greek word for to have compassion, to have pity. But it's not really to have, it's something passive. It's something that happens to the person who has it. It happens to you. It's, it's, it's a movement that comes at the person. And it comes from the oplanka root, which means the guts, the intestines, the liver, the heart. So what does this mean? That when our Lord sees suffering, He interiorizes it. And He has a physical reaction to suffering. He is hopelessly involved in everyone's suffering. And he doesn't want to distance himself from it. We, whatever we suffer, he understands. He experiences perfectly. If the Greek word involves all of the vital organs there in the center... The Hebrew word for mercy is also equally, well, there are two. Chesed, which is loving tenderness, it's also mercy. It has a juridical notion, too, chesed, which means that once somebody is the object of this loving compassion, this loving mercy, there's a legal bond. 
there's a legal bond that, that then comes about. You know, there, was, there's a, there is a, a certain a, a formal union made. We can offend our Lord. We can make no more legal claims. Yeah, but what about chesed? Well, yes, what about chesed? What about this loving compassion, this legal bond? Our Lord has bound himself to this legal bond. He's bound himself to this contract, so to say, that he cannot be unfaithful to it. Chesed also has the notion of this loving tenderness. So even if we can't make a legal claim from our own side, we can at least make a claim to his heart. The other word in, in Hebrew, rachamim, for mercy, has the same root as a mother's womb. So notice how the Hebrew, the Greek, and as we'll see in a second, the Latin has a physical connotation. So for rachamim, the, the mother's womb, this is a place of refuge. It's a place that is so intimate for the woman that she is so united to her little one who's growing within her. This is how we understand our Lord's mercy towards us. How could He deny us? Of course He can't deny us. In Latin, we say misericordia, right? It comes from miser, which means to be poor, indigent. And cor, cordis, right? Heart. So to have a heart for the poor, to have a heart for the most needy. Misery, again, there's this biological connotation. And we, we, we heard in the gospel that our Lord was moved to pity. So it's, notice he is... He's kind of dragged along by our suffering. He's moved. He, he, he's, he experiences it physically. And it's not something that he does. It's something that it happens to him. So it's, not, it's very far from an intellectual thing for our Lord. It's a, it's a vital thing, this compassion, this mercy that he shows us. Certainly, it's a lesson for us of what our own mercy and compassion is supposed to look like. To imitate His. If we have been the object, of we've, if we've been on the receiving end of His mercy, and we commit ourselves to Him, we, we, we enter into this legal bond with Him, we enter into this relationship, then how can our own compassion, our mercy, be anything less than that? He wants to extract all of this out of us so that when we see injustice, or better said, when we experience injustice, our reaction is not a visceral, violent reaction, but it's a visceral reaction of mercy in which we don't consider merely how we feel or how wrong something was that happened to us. Rather, we recognize that if our suffering is imperfect, our Lord's suffering in His sacred humanity still is perfect. When He revealed to St. Faustina the, soul, the suffering of the souls in purgatory, He had a look of such sorrow on His face, and He points to the souls in purgatory, He says, I didn't want this. 
and nonetheless in his sacred humanity, you know, our Lord continues in his sacred humanity to have his emotions in a, in a perfect way, not like we have our emotions, which are antecedent and we have all sorts of negative connotations with things that don't really correspond to the intellect. Our Lord's emotions in their perfect, in their perfect state correspond perfectly to the truth. So his suffering, we could say, is a perfect suffering. And so when we experience things, whether in the church or in our, in our own country through the regime, things that are unjust, our first reaction ought not be to have a pity party for ourselves and to feel sorry for ourselves and to become angry and embittered. That goes nowhere because that's not what our Lord does. You know, this happened in, in a town called Naim. Naim is Hebrew for, it means beautiful or pleasant. And that's where we get the name Naomi, comes from Hebrew. So if you remember the mother-in-law of Ruth, in the book of Ruth, right? She said, I'm no longer Naomi, I'm no longer beautiful, pleasant, I'm called embittered, right? She was kind of a, making a pun on her own name. You're a Catholic, so you probably don't read the Bible, but believe me, it's there. On the other hand, that's not our task, okay? When, when, things, when bad things happen to us, we aren't to become embittered. Rather, we consider the one who suffers this perfectly. Lovers accompany each other in sorrow. So we go to his heart. When you read bad news, your first reaction, my first reaction, and I don't always do this well, but our first reaction ought to be, forgive us, Lord. Have mercy on us, Lord. Accept this act of love and reparation to your heart for what you're suffering in the situation. No matter what it is, he suffers it perfectly. Our task as lovers of the heart of Christ is to go to him, to bring him our comfort, our consolation, our fasting, our penance, our prayer, acts of love. That's how a follower of Christ acts. This is not natural. This is supernatural. It's very easy to get angry. It's very easy to be embittered. And that goes nowhere. And ultimately, it makes our worship impossible. That's why our Lord tells the man who's angry, right? He says, if you're angry and you're on your way to the temple to leave your offering, settle accounts before you do. Why? Because that offering, that worship means nothing. It's, it, true worship is impossible if we have what's... Thomas Aquinas calls a habitus mentis, a habit of mind, of anger. This habit. Because we're constantly building a wall around our hearts that doesn't allow the penetration of another's suffering because we're so wrapped up in our own. So we have to constantly break down this wall. And this is a, this, these decisions that we make under the action of grace and in prayer, they have a very short shelf life. We have to constantly remake them. Constantly ask for more grace to do it. To deepen our configuration of our heart with the heart of Christ. And then, our merciful hearts, our hearts configured with the heart of Christ, that can be experienced pain, nonetheless, that go to Him, Proof that a great prophet has risen up amongst us. Our Lord's resurrection is true because I'm participating in his resurrection in a certain sense already by living 
this divine mercy, this compassion, allowing myself to go to him with a broken heart to bring consolation to his sacred heart. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.